Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us for another week, or if this is your first time, thanks for checking us out. Yes, welcome. Some of you may be new listeners who have found us through our giveaway that we just had. So if that is you, we're super excited that you've chose to check us out. And if you didn't see who won, go check out our Facebook page. We were super happy to be able to gift that to someone. So we had a winner on our Facebook, and Christy has a winner in our case today. You have a survivor from your case, don't you? I do. She's only told me a little bit about it, but I'm excited. It's not very often that we get to tell a survivor story. This is true. And that's one of the reasons why I've been itching to do this case for a long time. So I am super excited to tell you this case. It's been one of those cases that I've never been able to get out of my head since the first time I learned about it many years ago. You know how you just have those ones that just really stick with you? Mm Mm-hmm. At first, I wasn't going to cover this case because there isn't a lot known about this dirtbag's childhood. But with that being said, I was able to find some information about his earlier life, as well as a few things about his deranged mental state to give it a go. I had been humming and hawing about doing this one for so long, but to be honest, it was actually a listener who helped me make the final decision to cover it today. Ooh, was it a request? It was! So not too long ago, I had watched another documentary about this killer because it just fascinates me, this case. And on that exact same day that I watched the documentary, a listener messaged us suggesting this case. So I knew then that I had to cover it. I just felt like the universe must have wanted us to cover it because that's too much of a coincidence. Mm -hmm. Or the universe knew that I just needed to get this out of my system, maybe. She just needs to talk about it, people. I do. I really do need to talk about this case. So I just want to give a big shout out to Larissa for messaging us about this case. We appreciate you and all of our listeners so much. Good job, Larissa. You and Christy are on the same brainwave. (laughs) Sorry, Larissa, if you are. (laughs) But yes, we totally had synced up that day. So I'm giving it a go. And I just want to say that we love the requests we receive from some of our listeners. And we wish we could do all of them, but we do put them on our list for future episodes. And we spend time looking into everyone to see if there are enough details that we can find to cover them. And you guys have sent us some pretty wild cases, that's for sure. We love it, so keep sending them. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that by covering this case, I will finally be able to get this evil man out of my mind for good. One of the other reasons that I think I've always been so drawn to this case is because it does have one of the most remarkable survivor stories I've ever heard. I just can't even believe that this woman survived what this vile dirtbag did to her. And goes on to tell her story. Yeah. If you don't know this story already, you're going to be in awe. Okay, Chrissy. So let's get into this story. Okay. Lawrence Bernard Singleton was born on July 28, 1927. He often went by Larry, but I will refer to him as Lawrence. His father was Albert Joseph Singleton. He was 41 when Lawrence was born. His mother was Lena Mae Richardson Singleton. She was 21 when she gave birth to this demon child. This means that there was a 20-year age gap between Lawrence's parents. 
That is quite the age gap. It is. Especially with 21 to 41, there's a lot of developmental growth going on in those years. Mm -hmm. Both Albert and Lena May passed away before the world found out what a monster their son was. Kind of a small blessing for them. I think so. The couple had nine children all together. Lawrence had five brothers and three sisters. They raised their children in Tampa, Hillsborough County, Florida. I'm guessing that Lawrence experienced a humble beginning being born in the 20s with such a large family. Oh, I could totally see that. Mm-hmm. All his siblings lived long enough to realize what their brother did, except for one of the sisters who died the same year she was born. Regarding his youth, neighbors and relatives of Lawrence's would later say that they knew deep down that he was a ticking time bomb. So there were signs from when he was really little that there was something going on with him. Yes. And I honestly think that this is one of those cases where we might be talking about an actual full-blown psychopath. Ooh. They are always the most interesting cases to me that we don't have that nurture element in there that contributes to their deranged way of thinking and the awful things they do to other human beings. Exactly. And he is so beyond evil. And there's just no other reasons pointing towards why he would be behaving the way that he does. Because usually when we're digging deep, we find, you know, childhood trauma or head injuries or just all these other signs that lead up. And there's none of that in Lawrence's records. Hmm. Lawrence was married twice and was divorced both times. It just amazes me that he had even convinced a woman to marry him once. Let alone two. Yes. And all I know is that he had at least one daughter. So was he charming then? I don't think so. Like, was he the manipulative psychopath? No, I don't get that from him. No. Okay. And evidently, this daughter of his was the same age as the surviving victim that we will be talking about. And this fact has always been so disturbing to me, how you can do such horrific things to a girl the same age as your own daughter. And not make that connection? Yeah. Have no empathy for her? I just feel like it takes a special type of cold blood to do that. Mm -hmm. Which would go back to, this is just in him. Yeah. Just pure evil. Yes. Reportedly, Lawrence and his daughter would often fight, and she refused to take any disciplinary action that he tried to impose on her. Maybe she knew deep down her dad was a dirtbag, too. She sounds feisty. Mm -hmm. Lawrence had a charge of contributing to delinquency of a minor on his record. I assume it is, but I'm unsure if this was regarding his own daughter. This means that he helped or persuaded a minor to do something delinquent. It could be something even like supplying them with alcohol. Okay. But that was kind of the only previous charge that I could find that he had. And you don't even know if it was his daughter or somebody else. Right. Okay. But he likes to interact with younger people, sounds like. Yes, which just makes him even that much more gross. Yeah. As an adult, Lawrence served as a PFC, which is a private first class soldier for the U.S. Army. He fought in Korea in the Second World War and earned a living as a master U.S. merchant marine. So like a seaman. It's interesting how many times that military career shows up in the dirtbags that we talk about. It really does. Well, a lot of them have that fascination of power. Mm -hmm. He was also known for his excessive drinking, his wicked temper, and his extreme hatred towards women. Oh, it does make you wonder what his relationship was with his mom. Yeah, I do talk about this a little bit near the end, but his siblings don't report any kind of abuse or abnormal upbringing. 
for the time. Okay. And you'd think that because he got two wives, he didn't have any trouble attracting women either. He wasn't getting made fun of and left behind, having a whole bunch of pent-up sexual urges that weren't met. Right. Or being turned down by women and feeling resentful towards them. Yeah. So we're going to jump forward to the fall of 1978, when Lawrence was 51 years old. As we have discussed before, 51 is an unusual age for a person to begin murdering people. We'll talk about it as well near the end, but many believe that what I'm about to share with you is not Lawrence's first attack. In fact, many believe it's far from it. Because of the viciousness of it, I tend to agree. What he did does not seem like a first-time attack. 51 is just too old to start. Yeah. I think he's responsible for a lot of attacks and even murders. Hmm. Because what I'm about to tell you is pretty vicious, so be warned. But I just don't feel like that's your first time when you're doing things like this. It seems more practiced. Mm-hmm. His first recorded victim was 15-year-old Mary Vincent. Mary was going through a bit of a rebellious streak. She didn't like the rules her parents had for her. They were on the stricter side, and Mary was more of a free spirit. She had six siblings and was living in Las Vegas with her family. Her father was a mechanic who had worked in the military, and her mother worked as a blackjack dealer. Unfortunately, Mary's parents decided they no longer wanted to be married to one another, and a messy divorce ensued. This was really hard on Mary. She finally couldn't stand it any longer and decided to run away. Reports say that she slept inside unlocked cars before deciding that she wanted to go stay with her grandfather, who lived in Berkeley, California. Mary was only 15, and so she couldn't drive herself there. Being true to the 70s, she decided to hitchhike one state over to get there. The trip would have been around 900 kilometers, or like 560 miles. Oh, man. Every time we talk about hitchhiking, it just creeps me out. I know. Because unfortunately, a lot of these stories stem from hitchhiking. Mm -hmm. You giving Mary's background already has me thinking about his previous charge and how that could play into it. Yeah, I think he knows how to pick out the vulnerable for sure. Mm -hmm. Mary did manage to make it to her grandpa's house, and she stayed with him for a short while. I'm not sure the exact amount of time, but some reports said that she was only with him for a few days. Mary had grown homesick and desperately wanted to go back home to see her family. She decided to go back home the same way she got there, by hitchhiking a ride with strangers. Her grandpa wouldn't give her a ride? I'm not sure how old he was, okay. or if he even drove. Right. And 900 kilometers is not an easy drive there and back. No. And when I read about this, I could just totally feel for Mary. I'm sure we can all relate to that feeling as a kid of being homesick. You just want to get home as soon as physically possible. And this is how Mary must have been feeling. Mm -hmm. Where you just feel like, I wanted to just teleport there. I just want to get home. The first part of Mary's journey home was a successful but short one. She made it to just outside of Modesto, California. On September 29th, 1978, Mary had met up with a couple of other people who were hitchhiking as well. The three of them were standing on the side of the road with their arms out and thumbs up the universal symbol for hitchhiking. Eventually, a light blue van stopped on the side of the road, just ahead of them. Mary ran up to the van to talk to the driver. Inside was an older man. He was balding and looked like a grandpa to her. He was super friendly and told Mary that he had a daughter her age, which I feel like would have put her at ease a little bit. Mm -hmm. He told her that he could give her a lift to Interstate 5. 
There was no one else in this man's van, so when Mary went to tell the other travelers to come and get into the van, the unassuming man told her that he only had room for her. Oh, no. And how creepy is it that he's already telling her, like he's making the connection, that he has a daughter the same age as her? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like that just slipped his mind and he didn't make that connection. Like he told her, oh, I have a daughter the same age as you. Right. So it was in the forefront of his thinking. Yeah. And this is another reason why I don't think this is his first time, because I don't feel like you're just driving down the road, see a teenage girl hitchhiking, and all of a sudden your brain says, oh, I'm going to pick up this girl and attack her. Like he knew from the moment he was talking to her by telling her, I can only take you. He knew already what he was planning to do. Yeah. Because if you're just driving down the road, you're not going to try and separate a group of hitchhikers. No. Especially when you have the room. He's driving a van, so he does have the room. Yes. So I feel like he was already a predator, and then he just saw his prey standing on the side of the road and had to stop. Mm. Mary ran over to her newly made friends and told them what this man had said, that he only had room for her. They warned her that it was a red flag that this stranger would only take her when he had all that room, and they urged her not to go. Oh, no. But Mary wouldn't listen. She was eager to get home, and the old guy didn't give her any bad vibes. She said he seemed friendly enough to her. And she's just so desperate to get home. She's not seeing the risk. Right. And she had hitchhiked all the way to California safely. She'd had good experiences only with it. Right. And she's got that teenage mentality of, oh, nothing bad will ever happen to me. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, everything did seem just fine. Mary and this old man got along good and were able to make small chat. Mary did not know that the man whose van she had gotten into was Lawrence Singleton. Nor did she know the sinister plan that he had for her. Lawrence told Mary that he had to make a quick stop at home and Mary agreed. They briefly stopped and then were back on their way. Mary felt so at ease with Lawrence that she asked him if he minded if she dozed off for a little while. Lawrence cheerfully told her to go right ahead. He didn't mind at all. Oh, so she's going to wake up in some unknown place because she's dozing in the, the vehicle, right? Yep. That's creepy. Mm-hmm. So, of course, he's like, yeah, absolutely. You nap all you want. As I drive you out into the woods. Exactly. Sometime later, Mary woke up and quickly realized that they were going the wrong way. They were no longer heading towards Interstate 5. They were headed towards Nevada. Mary rightfully got quite upset by this. And when she voiced her concerns, Lawrence acted like he didn't even know that he had gotten so off course. Mary's startlement lessened when Lawrence turned around and started to head back towards Interstate 5. He acted like he had just made an honest mistake. He said he missed the important turnoff accidentally. He told her, quote, I'm just an honest man who made an honest mistake. She later said that she was scared and angry at the same time, but she also must have felt so vulnerable in that moment. Because mm -hmm. she knew right away when she woke up that this is not right. And this is when red flags start going off for Mary. But you'd think that she would almost have a sigh of relief when he admits it, right? He's like, oh, he's turning around. Okay, all that fear that I had, that's okay. He is still that good guy. I was just being paranoid. Yes. Yeah, I think you're right. She totally would have had that moment of relief. Okay, he's turning around. Like, she would have been scared at first. Oh, sorry, I didn't notice. And then he starts heading back towards Interstate 5 for her. But that feeling wouldn't last long for Mary. They drove for a little while, and then Lawrence announced that he needed to relieve himself. He said he couldn't wait for the next rest stop and was going to just pull over. Lawrence pulled off the road, 
but didn't just park on the shoulder of the road. He turned into a little side road in the Del Porto Canyon area and drove until no one from the main road could see them. He put the car in park and got out, assuming to pee. When he got out of the van, so did Mary. She had noticed that her shoelace was untied. She was feeling uneasy and wanted to make sure that if she needed to run, she could, without tripping over her shoelace. Smart. But I think I would have stayed in the vehicle and locked all the doors with the keys and took off on him. Yeah, I don't know what you'd be thinking in that time. But she's anxious enough about it that she's like preparing, right? Right. She said as they were going into this little side road area, she looked down and saw that her shoelace was untied. She's like, I have to tie my shoelace. So she got out when he did. And she later said that she thought that because she was so much younger than him, that she could likely outrun him if need be. Oh, you would think that. Yeah. But not really taking into account that this is a grown man. He's a bigger guy, a grown man. He still would have a lot of strength at age 51. And she's a child, Mm -hmm. which makes this so much worse. It was not a fair fight. What Mary didn't know is that Lawrence had not gotten out of the van to go to the bathroom. Instead, he walked around the van to where Mary was bent over, facing away from him, tying her shoe. The next thing Mary knew, she felt a hard blow to her head. Lawrence repeatedly hit her on the head and back from behind. Mary recalls him using a sledgehammer to hit her, but court documents suggest that he used his fists. He must have had massive hands. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it was both. Maybe he had a sledgehammer there and was also hitting her with his fists. I'm not really sure, but I just thought I would mention that there was that discrepancy there. Okay. Either way, Mary fell to the ground. When she turned around, she saw the once friendly man standing over her. That would have been terrifying. Yeah. I can't even imagine what this woman has gone through. Lawrence picked up Mary and threw her into the back of his van. He tied Mary's hands together behind her back, tore open her clothes, and forced her to perform oral sex on him. He then raped her vaginally as well. And he just happened to have rope in the back of his van? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is not his first time. No. This seems totally premeditated. Absolutely. I don't believe it is at all. And I don't think anyone can convince me that it was his first attack. Lawrence decided to drive further ahead, deeper into the canyon, to a more secluded area, where he continued his torture for the rest of the night. He forced her to drink alcohol that he had in a plastic jug and spent the entire night forcing her to perform oral sex on him, raping her and sodomizing her over and over again. And not just once or twice, but multiple times. That is so horrible. At one point, Lawrence got tired and had a nap in the front seat. Mary tried desperately to free herself, but she could not untie her restraints. But he was a merchant seaman. He would have known really good knots to use so that she could not escape. That is so true. I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Throughout this horrific ordeal, 15-year-old Mary repeatedly begged and asked him to set her free. I watched a documentary of her telling this account, and she said, I just kept saying, please set me free. Please set me free. He kept telling her that she was going to be his good little girl as if she was one of his kids. It's a really sick thing to say. One, when he has his own daughter that age and that she wasn't a good girl. There's a lot of stuff that you could read into about that. Even him just calling her that. I know. Really sick. Right. He's just a vile pig of a human being. Ugh. Everything about him disgusts me. Mary said she was aware during the entire ordeal. Eventually, she noticed the sun starting to rise. 
Lawrence took her out of the van and stood her up. He then cut the ropes off of her wrists. Mary thought he was going to finally set her free. She could hear Lawrence rummaging around his tools in the back of the van. He pulled out a hatchet, walked up to her, and grabbed her by the left arm with his left hand. He looks at her and tells her, If you want to be set free, I'll set you free. He then raises his right hand high into the air, holding the hatchet, and brings it down onto Mary's arm. With this strike, he completely severed her left arm right below the elbow. Ugh, I couldn't imagine the pain of that. She's fully awake. She's fully awake, and she does talk about the pain. She says just the hot, hot pain of this. She said she stayed alert the whole attack, even afterwards, and she said she felt everything. And this, too, speaks to his strength in one blow to sever her arm. That is true. Mm -hmm. And his hatchet would have had to been super sharp. Razor sharp, which, again, means he was prepared. Yeah. When this happened... Mary stumbled back a little, but Lawrence grabbed her by the right arm as she was falling back. He's going to do both arms? Yes. Mary said that at first she was confused. When Lawrence had grabbed her by the left arm, she instinctively grabbed onto his arm as well with her left hand and gripped him tightly. She couldn't understand why she was falling backwards if she was holding onto her attacker. Her brain didn't process it right away. That she was missing her left hand. Yeah, she thought she was still holding on to him. So when he swung down on her arm and she started to fall back, her brain was confused. She's like, why am I falling if I'm hanging on to him? Because she could still feel like she was hanging on to him. Now, with Lawrence holding on to her right arm, Mary tried to fight him off. She was kicking, screaming. She wanted someone to hear her, trying to get away. But he was just too strong. And he's drug her out into the middle of nowhere. Yes. And he's, again, like I said, a full-grown man attacking a child. Lawrence proceeded to chop at Mary's right forearm. Because she was fighting, it would take him multiple chops to cut this arm from her body as well. Oh, I can't even imagine. As Mary fell backward to the ground, bleeding profusely from her arms, she looked up at Lawrence and saw him frantically flailing his left arm about. When he had chopped off her left arm, her hand had tightened around his arm and hadn't let go. Oh, she was still holding on to him. She was. Her severed arm was still dangling from his arm. He had to loosen her hand's grip to fling it off from him. Chrissy, that is like right out of a horror show. It is. I literally have no words for how incredibly traumatic this experience would have been for Mary. She's laying on the ground, no arms, bleeding profusely, and she sees this man flicking his arm around, trying to get her arm off of him. That is wild. You can see why this has never left my brain. Yeah, now it's not going to leave mine. (laughs) Thanks. Sorry, listeners. But I just, you can see why I need to talk about this case. I just can't even believe that this happened to her. That is so unreal. And as a child, as a grown woman my age, this would be so hard to go through. But at 15, after being raped for like a whole day through the whole entire night, so viciously and disgustingly, I can't even imagine. What a dirtbag. Mm-hmm. About this part of the attack, Mary later said, quote, He took my left arm and took one swing, and I started to fall. And then he took another swing, and I grabbed his arm, grabbed it real tight, and I couldn't figure out holding him real tight on his left arm, but I'm still falling. Her brain just couldn't compute it. No. Lawrence wasn't done with Mary. What? And she must have known it. 
she decided to go limp and act like she was dead. He grabbed her and drug her 50 yards, or like 150 feet, from the van to the side of an embankment. There was a railing to guard people from falling off the road to the bottom. Lawrence picked up Mary and threw her over the railing to land 30 feet below onto a rocky area. Although she had broken some of her ribs, Mary knew not to make a sound and to just lifelessly lie there. I don't know how you wouldn't make a sound. I don't know either. Lawrence carefully walked down to the bottom of the embankment and picked up Mary's body. He shoved her into a drainage culvert that was under the road, which is like a large tunnel to allow water to pass beneath the road, so no one would see her body. As he did this, he said to Mary, quote, Okay, now you're free. What a dirtbag. And how did he know that that culvert was there? Yeah, because that was 150 feet away. Yeah. And like, it wasn't like this was the spot he planned to go to because she had woken up and told him to turn around. Yeah, I don't know. Huh. Well, it might have been because it's kind of in a canyon area. So he might have just drug her till he found a spot where he could throw her. Maybe. And then noticed it and thought, oh, I'm going to hide her body so no one finds her. Just convenient for him, I guess. Yeah. Lawrence walked away, but Mary had no way of knowing if he had actually left or not. She decided to lay there for a while just in case. She was afraid that if she got up too soon, he might see her and finish the job. So she just laid there bleeding, in pain. She's now broken some bones from being thrown off of the cliff. I don't know how you would remain still through that. Like, was she going in and out of consciousness? No, she said she stayed awake the whole time. My goodness. That is like a miracle in and of itself. It is. After a while, Mary started to feel weak from the blood loss and knew that if she didn't get out of that culvert, she would die. She said she heard a voice to get up, that she needed to survive so he couldn't do this to anyone else. Mary somehow mustered the strength and crawled out of the tunnel. She dug her arms into the mud to pack the fresh wounds. I cannot even fathom the pain that that would have caused. She then raised her arms high above her head to slow down the bleeding and to prevent muscle and tissue from falling out of the wounds, and she crawled, without hands, up the steep 30 feet embankment towards the road. I can't even imagine her doing that. No. So she's only got elbows left, and she's literally crawling her way up the embankment. Yeah. Oh. And she wouldn't even be able to use her elbows. Like, that would have been so painful. But she packed them in the mud, put them way over her head, and climbed up there. And it did take her a while, because by the time she had reached the top of the cliff, night was falling. Yeah, it was morning when he first chopped off her arms, and now it was night. So it's been at least like 12 hours. Yes. Once Mary made it to the road, a car did appear driving towards her. It was a red convertible with two men inside. However, they were so freaked out when they saw the state that Mary was in that they sped up and kept driving. No! Not stopping to help Mary, despite her yelling out for them to help her. They just drove by. Her appearance must have been so shocking. She was a teenage child, walking along the road, completely naked, with both of her arms chopped off at the elbows and raised high in the air, completely covered from head to toe in blood and dirt. Mary later said that she looked like something out of a Fright Night movie. But at that moment, when that car drove past her, she felt like she was going to die. I don't know how you wouldn't have just given up then. Mm -hmm. After that huge struggle to get away from him and to play dead and then to try and make it up the culvert and back to the roadway. And then to have the first car you see go by. Yeah, and it seemed like that car came pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So she would have felt this rush of, I'm saved. Someone's here. They're going to help me. This is over. 
And then to see them drive away in the night and leave you standing in this wooded area all alone in the dark. That would have been awful. Mm -hmm. I can't believe that she lived through this. No, me either. And that thought of, I need to live through this so it doesn't happen again to somebody else. Yeah. Oh, that is chilling. It is. And it speaks to her character. Mm -hmm. Miraculously, Mary managed to walk three miles in the dark before encountering another car. This time, it was a young couple... And thankfully, they decided to stop and help Mary. The couple were on their honeymoon, and they later said that they had gotten lost, and that's why they were on that particular road. Oh, doesn't that seem like intervention? I just put in there, I think that was divine intervention. I think that voice that she heard telling her to get up, and this couple getting lost, I think there was a higher power in that, helping her. The first thing Mary said to them was, he raped me. The couple wrapped her arms in towels, set her in their back seat, and rushed her to get help. Mary was taken by helicopter to the hospital and was immediately rushed into surgery. She had lost half of her body's blood, and the other half of her blood had become toxic. She would spend an entire month in the hospital recovering from her injuries. Her wounds would have been a cesspool. Oh, yeah. There would have been so much infection. But had she not packed them in mud, I don't know that she would have survived. Mm -hmm. Once in recovery, Mary was able to give police an extremely detailed description of her attacker. With her help, they were able to make a fairly accurate composite sketch of Lawrence Singleton. The sketch was sent out through the media, and thankfully, a man recognized the monster in the picture. The monster was his neighbor, Lawrence Singleton. His neighbor recognized him. Yes. Now that the police had a name to match the picture, they arrested Lawrence 10 days after the attack and charged him with rape, sodomy, oral copulation, kidnapping, mayhem, and attempted murder in the first degree. I hate that word, oral copulation. Like she had any part of that at all. No, she did not. That's just wrong. I agree. They apprehended him in Nevada at his ex-wife's apartment complex. When police searched Lawrence's home in San Pablo, They discovered partially burned clothing believed to have belonged to Mary, along with her package of cigarettes that she had with her at the time of the attempted murder. Was it really her clothing? They said they believed it was her clothing. I don't think there was the testing then. Okay. Like we do now, right? I just really don't think that she was his first victim. And so I'm listening intently to be like, okay, where's the evidence that there's more? Oh, yeah. That's why you were asking. Yeah. (laughs) Was it really her clothing or was it like this stockpile of clothing that he's like, oh, I've got enough now. I should burn it. Yeah, maybe. Or it could have had her fresh blood on there and he was trying to burn it. Yeah. And I think he kept the cigarettes as his trophy. Mm. Was he a smoker? I don't know if he was. He was an alcoholic. He was an avid drinker. He had cleaned his van and had even replaced the carpet that was in the back. So they didn't find any evidence in his van. So he knows what he's doing. He does. That's why I just don't believe this is the first time. A few days after leaving Mary for dead, Lawrence had attempted suicide by overdosing on sleeping pills. Oh, that changes things, though. Did it for you when you heard that he tried to commit suicide? I don't know. He makes multiple attempts that we're going to find out. Oh, okay. So he's feeling some remorse then? I don't know. I just hate this man so much. I have a hard time believing that he feels remorse at all. Hmm. Does he know he's a monster and that he has to be stopped? I don't know. Does he ever give a reason why he tried to commit suicide? Well, actually, there is a note on one of them. And he maybe gives a little bit of an explanation that we'll cover when we get there. Okay. Five months after her attack, during the trial, 
Mary had to face the man who had savagely dismembered her. That is so wrong for the court to make them do that. Yeah, just wait, it's going to get worse. This time, Mary had prosthetics where her forearms and hands used to be. And her prosthetic hands were not like the ones available today. They were more like metal pinchers or hooks, for lack of a better way to describe them. During the trial, a recording was played of Lawrence's earlier testimony. He claimed that he was the real victim, not Mary. What? What kind of story did he try to tell them? He suggested that Mary was a runaway who threatened to hurt him if he didn't drive her to L.A. He said he did pick up the other two hitchhikers who were with her, and they all bought dope from a bar, smoked it, and then she had sex with all of them for money. He claimed it was the other hitchhikers, named Larry and Pedro, who must have hurt her. He said he had passed out, and when he awoke, the other Larry was driving. And despite Mary's clothing still being in the van, Mary was gone. He claimed he dropped off the two male hitchhikers in San Francisco, and that was all that happened. So he just burned her clothing and replaced the carpet in his van just because. Right. Well, we know none of this is true. Yeah. Because of Mary's brave testimony, Lawrence was found guilty of his crimes in March of 1979. However, because of the lenient sentencing laws at the time for sexual crimes in California, Lawrence was only sentenced to 14 and one-third years to be served in the San Quentin, California prison. The presiding judge had given Lawrence the maximum sentence possible and was quite upset that they couldn't sentence him to a longer term. The judge said, quote, if I had the power, I would send him to prison for the rest of his natural life. They only charged him for sex crimes, not attempted murder? That was with the attempted murder. Oh, that but, was with the attempted murder. Yeah, because he was found guilty on all charges. Wow. But what is even worse than the wimpy sentence that Lawrence got was when Mary had to walk past Lawrence to leave the courtroom. Being only inches away from him, he leaned in towards her and whispered loud enough for others to hear, quote, I'll finish this job if it takes me the rest of my life. What? And I just thought, what a dirtbag. Slap more sentence on him then. Right. And I did watch a documentary that said they could have given him more charges for that. Yeah, that's uttering death threats. Yeah. And this statement proves that he did not feel one speck of remorse. Being this cold and ruthless suggests to me that Mary was definitely not his first victim. He knew exactly the type of torment that statement would leave her with. Yeah, that's just wrong. And now I was feeling like, oh, he tried to commit suicide. Maybe he was feeling remorseful. But with that statement, no way. Mm -mm. I don't think he ever feels sorry for anything that he does. No, he's just trying to elicit more terror for her, as if he hasn't terrorized her enough. Yeah, he got off on being able to see her. He's seen his handiwork. She has these prosthetics. She had to walk past him only inches away, and he used that as an opportunity to do another blow at her. I can't physically hurt her, but I can hurt her with my words, and I know it's going to terrify her. Ugh, that is just a dirtbag. I know, he's so infuriating. While incarcerated... Lawrence was a model prisoner. How many times do we hear this? And it makes me crazy. Quit calling them model prisoners. They're they... dirtbags that deserve to be in there. Are they going to let him out on good behavior? <laughs> they are. What? Yes. He behaved himself and worked inside the prison as a teacher's aide. After serving only eight years no. of his 14-year prison sentence, Lawrence was up for parole. This is going to make you all mad because I'm going to tell you what is said about him and then what happens. 
The psychiatrist who had been treating him at San Quentin Prison said about him, quote, because he is so out of touch with his hostility and anger, he remains an elevated threat to others' safety inside and outside the prison. He was also described by multiple psychiatrists at San Quentin as having a paranoid personality, being a severe schizoid who was capable of angry and destructive outbursts on those weaker than he is. And they let him out. Yep. Early. Yes. Almost like half his sentence. Just over half his sentence. Donald Stahl, the prosecutor at Lawrence's trial, said, quote, I think, if anything, he's worse now. He has not taken responsibility. He lives in a bizarre fantasy land and acquits himself each day. He does not accept his guilt and won't resolve never to do it again. And I also wanted to remind everyone that Lawrence had blamed Mary for what had happened to her during the trial. He is delusional. He called her a, quote, $10 a night whore. (gasps) He said it was the other Larry hitchhiker that did it and that he was being framed. He also stated that he was the one being threatened by a 15-year-old girl. He made it sound like he was kidnapped by her. He said, quote, everything I did was for survival. He continued to try and defend himself by saying, sailors are never hostile to prostitutes. Oh, what a creep. So at the parole hearing, all of this is being said. All of this is being brought up. All the psychological reports. Yes. Saying he is a threat. He is not remorseful. He will do it again. A rational parole panel would listen to these statements and maybe question letting a man who viciously raped and mutilated a child free on the streets. For some unbelievable reason, in a cruel twist of fate, Lawrence Singleton was granted his parole and released early for his good behavior in April of 1987. That is bizarre. Mm -hmm. What were they thinking? They weren't. They were using zero brain cells in making that decision. Who cares if he's being good in prison and helping teach people in prison? Okay, so he's going on to do what other horrific acts? We always cover a murder, right? Mm -hmm. That's where we're headed. Oh, it's just so maddening when they let people out who have these pasts and very clear tendencies that they are still going to be violent. And even at his sentencing, his judge said, He should be locked up for the rest of his life. If I could, I would. And they're going to let him out. Just to go on to murder somebody else. Yep. And isn't that so much more awful? Because Mary fought so hard. She had the courage to continue to fight through all of that pain and go through what she went through because she had this premonition that if she did, she could save somebody else's life. Mm -hmm. And they're just going to let him back out so that he kills. Yep. I do think with him being locked up for that eight years, she probably did save multiple lives. That's true, but But she did everything that she could, and the justice system just had to keep him in jail, and they could have saved more lives. Yeah, it was like a slap in the face to her Mm -hmm. as a survivor. Yeah. Understandably, Mary was terrified that Lawrence would make good on his word and finish the job. She lived in constant fear, worried he might track her down. She could never stay in one spot for too long. Remember, he had promised her that he would one day finish the job that he had started. Mm -hmm. And why wouldn't she believe him? Lawrence had physically tortured Mary years prior, but he had continued to mentally every day since the attack. As a result, she fell into a depression. She was kept up at night with nightmares and struggled to hold down a job with her prosthetics. She later said that she had to work twice as hard to do things without hands. 
Mary developed an eating disorder and plummeted to under 100 pounds. Her anxiety became so crippling that it became challenging for her to even leave her house to run a simple errand. And all of this happened after his release. Yeah. She was having a hard time before, but at mm-hmm. least she knew where he was. But once he got released, her fear skyrocketed. And understandably so. Yeah. So she just couldn't settle. She had to continue to move from house to house to house, from place to place. She would never feel safe. No, not at all. Always looking over her shoulder. Mary filed a civil suit against Lawrence for her pain and suffering. It was settled in May of 1987 for $2.56 million in her favor. However, she was never awarded a penny of that money. Lawrence didn't have anything of value to pay her. His health was poor, he only had $200 in his bank account at the time, and he didn't have a job. I believe at this point he was living off of his marine pension, which should have went to her. Yeah. When Lawrence was released from prison, he was unable to find a town close enough to the prison to serve his parole in. He had been ordered to stay in Contra Costa County, California. People in the surrounding areas knew what a disgusting monster he was and protested him living in their towns. They didn't just sign a petition. They would gather in the hundreds and cause such a scene and to police had to move him. I can't blame them. Yeah, it was pretty wild. I actually really loved reading all of the things that these townspeople were doing. They're like, nope, he is not coming to our town and then police would have to remove him. But he had to stay within a certain distance of the prison. So instead of moving into a community, he ended up living in a trailer on the San Quentin prison grounds. It is rumored that he even had to be supplied a bulletproof vest when he was transferred for his safety. Lawrence only had to serve one year of parole and then was free to leave the state. What? Mm Mm-hmm. No, like nothing after that. Nope. Just free to go. Yep. One year living on our grounds in our trailer that our taxpayer dollars are going to supply you with. You live here for a year and keep your nose clean, then we're going to let you go. But what kind of interaction is he having with the real world that's actually going to give him any experience to how to reform? Zero. Everyone in California wanted this man dead, and that's why they had to protect him. So how do they feel after a year? Okay, yep, he's reformed enough. We're just going to let him back out into society. Yep. And we're not even going to keep tabs on him like he is allowed to leave the state. And that's just what he did. Fail. Mm -hmm. When the year was up in April of 1988, he left California and moved back to his roots in Florida. He immediately went and visited family in the Tampa area. Although he was now close to family, not everyone was excited to have him back in Florida. While he was staying with one of his brothers, someone detonated a homemade bomb at his brother's house. It made a four-foot-wide indent in the yard. And another man even offered to pay him $5,000 to leave Florida. So who detonated the bomb? Like, just somebody... Somebody did, yeah. People just wanted him out of there, too. Not as badly as in California. I don't think as many people in Florida knew about his crimes. There weren't mobs gathering. Right. But there were bombs being set off. Yep. At his family's houses. At his brother's home. Oh, his poor brother. Now a free man, Lawrence the Dirtbag, couldn't keep his nose clean. He was arrested twice in Brandon, Florida in 1990 for petty theft. In April, he was arrested and pled no contest for stealing a $10 camera from a drugstore. Marky jumping to, what's he need a camera for, Christy? (laughs) Ooh. He's got no friends to take pictures of. He got caught anyways. Well, he's living with his family now, though. Mm, suspicious Mm -hmm. I just can't even imagine being his family like how could you let him around your kids 
I don't know. But I think too, remember he's family. And so if you grew up with him, there's a lots of family members that can't break that connection of this was my little brother. You know, he was cute. I used to take care of him. Mm-hmm. I can still take care of him. Yeah. Trying to help him. Yeah. That's not such an easy bond to break. It's not. So after being arrested for stealing the camera, he had to serve 60 days in the Hillsborough County Jail. In November, he lifted a $3 hat from Walmart and was arrested again. And because he's not on parole, all of these arrests aren't going to put him back in jail. Well, he does go to jail this time and had to serve two years in the same jail. Okay. For a $3 hat. Serves him right. Mm-hmm. But we're still not even at the years he would have served had he served his full sentence. No, not at all. There are no more arrest records for a few years after he served those two years until 1997. And by this time, how old is he? He's getting close to 70. On February 1st, 1997, Lawrence is again arrested for theft. This time, it was for an $87 electric drill. This same... Sorry. (laughs) I need to keep my comments to myself sometimes. You're wondering why is he getting these things? Why does he need a drill, Christy? Well, I just watched the whole Dahmer documentary, so that's where my mind is going. Yeah, I don't know. Let's just hope it's for some home improvements. We know it's not. Probably not. This same day, Lawrence attempted to end his own life again. He attached a dryer hose to the exhaust pipe of his van and funneled it back into his van where he sat to try and kill himself from the vehicle's exhaust fumes. And he did this right out on the street where people were. According to witnesses, he made three attempts to get it to work. He had to get out, fix the pipe, go back in. Three times. A couple walking by in his neighborhood saw what he was doing and did rescue him. Inside his home, he had left a one-page suicide note. And in the note it said, quote, I hope that I find peace. Please have me cremated and have my ashes thrown into Palm River on the outgoing tide. So when you asked why... This is the only explanation we have, that he wants to feel peace. Yeah, too bad. You don't get any. No, he doesn't deserve any. No. But maybe that speaks to the mental demons that he was fighting, just never felt any peace. Because of this suicide attempt, he was admitted into the St. Joseph Psychiatric Care Center. Lawrence's family knew that he needed serious help. They encouraged doctors to have him committed to the center involuntarily under the state's Baker Act. They were worried that he would hurt someone else if he was released. So even his family is like, keep him here. He can't be let out. A petition was made. It was even signed by two different psychiatrists who worked at the psychiatric care center. They stated that he, quote, posed a real and present threat of substantial harm to his well-being. A court hearing to decide if Lawrence would have to stay at the center was scheduled for less than two weeks later on February 13th. However. Lawrence wouldn't stay there long enough to even be present for the hearing. He lawfully signed himself out of the facility on February 10th. The center didn't yet have a court order in place to hold him, and somehow the Baker Act hearing was cancelled altogether. That is so crazy. This error in the system would turn out to be a fatal one. Lawrence would proceed to murder a woman just nine days after walking out of the psychiatric care center's doors. That is so sad. And so preventable. Yeah, that's the thing. Lawrence's family were devastated by his actions. They spoke to the press anonymously and expressed how they were counting on the doctors holding Lawrence according to the Baker Act. 
They said they were told by the psychiatrist that he was indeed psychotic. The administrator of the facility declined to comment on the situation. We see this in cases, and it's so frustrating. Why are criminals being professionally deemed a danger to themselves and to others and then being released into the general public? Yeah, why did he ever have the right to sign himself out? Yeah, and why even bother having the psychiatrist say that he's dangerous and psychotic if you're not even going to listen to them and just let him go? There's just so much paperwork that gets lost and shuffled and people fall through the cracks. It's so sad. Mm -hmm. We need to do better as Mm -hmm. a society. Sadly, this murder I'm going to tell you about could have been prevented had he not been allowed to walk out the facility doors. Lawrence was registered in Florida as a felon, but he was not on probation and he was not being monitored by local authorities. On February 19th, 1997, just a few months shy of his 70th birthday, Lawrence would viciously murder a 31-year-old woman named Roxanne Hayes. On that day in Tampa, Florida, police received a 911 call from a frantic man. The caller was a house painter who happened to see a grisly scene unfold inside the home where he had been hired to paint. This man said that he could see a naked man who was covered in blood stabbing a naked woman over and over again. He said the woman was laying motionless on a couch and that he could hear bones crunching with each stab. She was not fighting back. Again, he has that strength to break a bone with a stab. Even at 70. Yeah, at 70. He's technically 69, but only a couple of months away from turning 70. I'm going to read a quick overview of the painter's testimony from the Supreme Court appeal documents. This isn't his words, but it's a summary of his words. And it says, quote, At trial, the state presented the testimony of Paul Hitson, an eyewitness. Hitson, who had been hired to paint Singleton's house, testified that after knocking on Singleton's door and calling his name, he walked into Singleton's house and heard a muffled, gurgling sound for help. Hitson stated that as he walked through the house, he heard another cry for help and, upon entering the doorway of the family room, saw Singleton hunched over a body on the couch. Hitson left the house through the carport door and told his uncle, who was waiting outside, what he had seen. Hitson then ran to the front of the house and looked through the window on the front door. Hitson kicked the door and in response heard another weak cry for help. Hitson saw Hayes laying on the couch, not moving, with Singleton standing over her with his hands around her neck. Hitson testified he then saw Singleton make three downward pounding motions on Hayes' chest and neck area, accompanied by bone-crushing sounds. Hitson then went with his uncle to telephone for help. Evelyn Neely, the mother of the painter Paul Hitson, said about her son witnessing the lethal attack of Roxanne, quote, What got him most is that man kept on killing her in front of him and not caring. He, he knew that he was there watching him. Yeah, he came right in the house. She said he was off in another dimension. She said her son stated that Lawrence had turned to look at him with a glass-like stare and then just continued attacking Roxanne. I'm not sure he saw him, though. He knew he was there because he heard him because he had been calling out, Mm -hmm. Hey, Lawrence. Hey, Larry. I'm here. Stopped and looked at him just in another dimension and then turned around and kept killing her. That's cold. Yeah. I wonder if it was registering to him, though. I don't know. Or if he was just in a state. Yeah, such a trance that once he started, he couldn't stop himself. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't believe this is his second attack. No. When police rushed to the scene at Lawrence's home, 
Lawrence answered the door covered in blood. He told the officers that he had just cut himself while chopping vegetables. (laughs) Naked? Yeah, covered greatly in blood. As he was saying this, police could clearly see a bloodied, lifeless woman laying on the floor behind him. Can you imagine being that officer? He is psychotic. He is. I don't know any other way to describe him. He is just the most cold-blooded killer ever. Lawrence told police that Roxanne was a sex worker. He said they agreed to $20 for her services, but that she had tried to steal more money from him, from his wallet, and threatened him with a knife. He said that she was stabbed as they struggled. Even though a witness saw multiple times him stabbing her? Yeah, and her not even being able to fight back, him strangling her. This story was obviously false. His defense team would also try to argue that Lawrence was not responsible for his actions because of his alcohol consumption at the time of Roxanne's death. That just always irks me when people try to use that defense. You're making that choice to consume that alcohol, and if you know that makes you violent, then that's still your choice. Yeah. And I don't think that that is why, anyways. No, he's just an outright dirtbag. Yeah. Roxanne was a mother of three. Her children were ages 3, 7, and 11. Circumstances in her life had caused her to turn to sex work as a way to provide for herself and her children. She was open about her line of work and said she did it to pay rent and buy diapers. A local sex worker at the time said about what happened to Roxanne, quote, You don't think a 70-year-old man is going to stab you to death. She probably thought she had chosen a guy that was safe. Right. And I wanted to add in here as well that when Mary complained about Lawrence's release, she was told that he was too old to be a threat. (gasps) No way. And now Roxanne would have probably thought, oh, he's 70. This is going to be an easy client. No problems. And I just feel like when are we going to start letting people's actions speak to how much of a threat they are, not their age or any other unrelated factor? Mm -hmm. I don't care how good you were behaving in prison. Never underestimate a dirtbag. Yeah. Roxanne was found with six stab wounds to her upper body and one to her face. The fatal wound had penetrated the right ventricle of her heart, causing her to bleed out. It was estimated that she would have been conscious for about four or five minutes after sustaining this life-ending injury. Roxanne also had deep defensive wounds to her hands. Her index and middle finger on her left hand had almost been completely severed. The murder weapon was determined to be a boning knife. Roxanne had a rocky past but is remembered fondly by her loved ones. They said she was a good person. Her boyfriend at the time said, quote, We will miss her. If any of those people could sit down with Roxy for 10 minutes, they would know she didn't deserve what she got. Absolutely she didn't. No way. Nobody does. And those poor children now left without a mother? Yeah, so tragic. And preventable. Mm -hmm. This didn't have to happen. That's what makes the whole thing so maddening. It does. After being taken into custody, Lawrence again tried to end his own life. He was sent to a psychiatric hospital for treatment before being sent to jail to await his murder trial. When Mary learned about what Lawrence had done to Roxanne, she knew she had to get over her fear and face her living demon to make sure he would never hurt another woman again. Again, she has to face him. Yes. This was the moment she knew that she had to come out of hiding. Mary, being one of the most courageous survivors I've ever come across, told the court of what she had experienced at the hand of Lawrence Singleton and how it had affected her life afterwards. And this could not have been easy for her. I also want to point out that she didn't have to go and testify. She volunteered. 
she mustered the strength to go so that he would have to pay for what he did to Roxanne. What an incredible person. Yeah, she's amazing. During her testimony, she pointed at Lawrence with her prosthetic arm and said, quote, I was raped. I had my arms cut off. He used a hatchet. He left me to die. After only four hours of deliberation by the jury, Lawrence was found guilty of first-degree murder. The jury recommended the penalty of death by a vote of 10 to 2. The court happily agreed, and Lawrence was given a death sentence. The judge giving him his sentence, Judge Anderson, said that Lawrence did not seem to even care about his sentence. The judge said, quote, This was an unprovoked, senseless killing of a human being. We are living in the times worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And he missed preventable. Exactly. And I wonder, like, looking back, did any of those parole board people feel think... like they had blood on their hands? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the psychiatric center that they let him out? Like, I know it's not them that did it, but it's just such a series of unfortunate events. It really is. And mm-hmm. things that should not have happened. The system needs reformation. Mm-hmm. One of Lawrence's family members said after the murder, quote, he was just a walking time bomb. That's all he was. As far as I'm concerned, they can take him to the electric chair. And do they? No. He's still alive? No. Oh. The state never had to carry out his death penalty. Lawrence Singleton died of natural causes after battling cancer on December 28, 2001, at the age of 74. So he only had to stay in jail for four years. Instead of dirtbag, his burial inscription just lists his military achievements. PFC U.S. Army, Master U.S. Merchant Marine, and World War II Korea. He is buried in the Garden of Memory Cemetery in Tampa, Florida. He was not cremated and scattered in the Palm River like he wanted. At least that's some sort of justice. Mm -hmm. Many believe that Lawrence did not randomly start attacking women, as we've said, in his 50s. He is suspected of murdering over a dozen women throughout his life. So to me, it sounds like they have specific victims that they do believe he murdered, but no evidence or way to charge him with that. Which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Before we end, I want to share more information regarding Mary Vincent, the heroine of today's case. Not often do we get to discuss survivors of the dirt bags we cover on our podcast. Plus, her case inspired much-needed change in the justice system. Oh, so something did change because of her? Yes. That's amazing. It really is. And I just wanted us to end with Mary. When Mary was younger, she was an avid dancer and had dreams of becoming a professional. These dreams were crushed when they had to use pieces of her legs to reconstruct her arms. She was married, but that marriage ended in divorce. Mary is the mother of two sons. Her love for her children helped her on her healing journey. Like I mentioned earlier, working has been physically challenging for Mary, and although her dream of dancing was taken from her, she developed a passion and talent for painting. She has been successful in selling paintings, some of them in the thousands of dollars. Oh, that's incredible. Without any hands. Mm -hmm. Yes, with her prosthetics, she's been able to paint beautiful pictures. That's amazing. Many of her paintings are of strong, powerful action figure like women who are ready to fight. That's fitting. I love it. Mm-hmm. With Lawrence dead, Mary has been able to move forward and says she is able to feel happiness again. She said that at first, his death did not bring as much peace as she had hoped it would. She didn't feel relieved when she found out he had died. She felt robbed of his execution. But she did say that the look of relief on her son's faces was all she needed to be okay with it. About her situation, she says, quote, 
Most people know me because of who I am, not just what happened to me. They just assume I was born this way. And this made me happy to hear that she is not viewed as a victim, but as her amazing self. She says that it is God and her sons that keep her going. One good thing to come from Mary's horrific experience is that after Lawrence was paroled from his plethora of crimes against her, a bill was passed named the Singleton Bill that states that a crime that involves torture will now carry a 25-to-life sentence. This bill also prevents early release of prisoners who have committed crimes of torture. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. So instead of 14 years getting out after eight, you're 25 to life and you're not getting out early. Which is right. Yeah, that is how it should be. This change in law is a start, but the system still fails many of those affected by sexual assault. As of 2021, a statistic released by RAIN, which stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, states that out of every 1,000 sexual assaults in the United States, only 230 are reported to police and only 25 of those will serve time for their crimes. That's really sad. 25 out of every 1,000. People who commit sexual violence are the least likely of convicted criminals to serve prison sentences. And aren't they the least likely to be reformed? Mm-hmm. And to put this into perspective at how outrageous these statistics are, every 68 seconds, a person in America is sexually assaulted. Every 68 seconds. And every nine minutes... That victim is a child. That's crazy. And we're allowing these predators to serve the least amount of prison time. So they they can just go on and do it again. Mm -hmm. That's crazy and so sad. It really is. And thank goodness we have women like Mary that stand up and are strong enough to tell their story that people can learn and then the system can change. I totally agree because these are sickening and startling statistics and more needs to be done. And to go along with what you just said about Mary being willing to stand up, she continued to try and do that even after Lawrence was convicted of murder. In 1998, Mary went to Washington, D.C. to testify in favor of a bill titled No Second Chances for Murderers, Rapists, or Child Molesters Act. She shared her story with the Congress at the time. She said, quote, I have now obtained the long overdue psychological counseling to help me get over my nightmares and fear. Yet, sometimes I still feel like that confused 15-year-old runaway trapped in the body of a 35-year-old mother of two. No one should ever have to go through what I went through or what the children of Roxanne Hayes will go through without their mother. That bill was never passed. Oh. Mary continued to be a victim's advocate, but chooses to stay out of the spotlight. All I can say is she is a superhero like the women she has painted. I chose to not even look to see where she is current day as she deserves to just live her life in peace. And that is the story of the deranged and cruel, evil to his core, creep of a man who never thought twice about maiming one woman and killing another, the atrocious dirtbag, Lawrence Singleton. A complete psychotic dirtbag. Mm-hmm. I just feel that this man was really evil to his core. He had a large family who experienced the same upbringing, And none of them admitted to any abuse taking place while growing up. And none of them turned out like he did. I just think he was truly sadistic. And it's just so maddening that they caught him and then let him go. Listeners, are you feeling the same way as us? Do you feel our rage coming through? I know. Ever since I've heard this case, I cannot even believe that a man could chop off the arms of a 15-year-old girl and not spend the rest of his life in prison to rape her for an entire day so viciously like he did. 
It's just bizarre. Yeah. And then he gets let out to do even worse. Ending it with Mary allows us to go away happy today, Christy. Yeah, we can focus on the amazing woman that she is. Mm-hmm. And from what I've heard, Melissa has a case coming up next week that might infuriate us just as much. Absolutely. But until then, we hope you guys have a wonderful week. See ya. Bye. take away your blanket if you don't (coughs) hang on (coughs) i feel like i have like a scratchy back up my throat (laughs) that sounded weird i'm trying to (laughs) you have a scratchy back up your throat i have a scratchy at the back of my throat okay that makes more sense kind of (laughs) kind of i called it a scratchy instead of a tickle (laughs) well then i gotta turn off my heat because I. yeah you're falling asleep i know i was gonna be like throw that blanket on the floor girl Okay, no more no more blankets for me. <laughs> Chrissy's trying to she's really testing me today. You know, I fed her lunch and gave her a warm blankie. <laughs> she's ready to fall asleep. You're like a toddler. <laughs> I just have to feed you and wrap you in a warm blanket. <laughs> like a toddler, I did not sleep last night. <laughs> me either. <laughs> what a pair we are. I need a chocolate bar or something. Anyways, we digress. Yes. <laughs> How do we even get on to that? I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm editing, I'm just like laughing. Like, oh, you're editing? I'm like, yep. I'm like, Melissa and I are hilarious. <laughs> I edit at the arena. I'm pretty sure people think I'm like totally crazy. Because you're like, <laughs> these bigger homes. <laughs> And sometimes, like, I try to laugh to myself, but sometimes it's just so funny. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, what are you laughing? And there's nothing on my screen, but, like, it's, they're expecting a video when they look on my screen. But it's not. It's all these little waves. Yeah. They're like, she's crazy. She, like, laughs at nothing all by herself. Does that make sense? Social yeah. media feeds? Yeah. Oh, my Why do I second guess? I should just talk. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. 
Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.